Welcome to the gardening podcast that's for everyone who enjoys growing their own flowers, fruits and vegetables. I'm Dan. And I'm Julia. And together we're Two Good Gardeners. We're an all-inclusive podcast, so whether your garden is big or small, north or south, sunny or shady, we are here to share our gardening know-how and great ideas that you can try at home. We upload a new episode every fortnight packed with news, timely tips and the occasional interview with gardeners we admire. We know you're busy people, so we like to keep things short and sweet. Think of this podcast as a bento box of delicious goodies to be consumed with gusto. Now we've whetted your appetite, let's crack on with episode three of series two, sponsored by Anatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Well, hello and welcome back to Two Good Gardeners. What glorious weather we've had down here in the southeast. Not so good, we know, for those of you in Scotland where it's been wet, wet, wet. But down here, it's been almost perfection. And we've had an action-packed couple of weeks, haven't we? From being cover stars on my local newspaper to me finally enjoying a few days off, enjoying the Kent countryside. Oh, I know you've had a few days off, Dan. The weather has been magnificent, hasn't it? It's put me in a good mood. And just going on to your local newspaper, well... What stars we became for a few days, maybe a few weeks, because I think it's on the newsstands for quite a few months. But imagine if we'd made centrefold. Oh, I know. Where would they have put the staples, I wonder? (laughs) (laughs) But you have been busy doing other things other than uh, modelling for the local newspaper, haven't you? Oh dear. Yes, I have. I have been knee deep in my workshops, which I do love. I love sharing tips and how to grow different things and I think autumn is possibly my favourite tranche of workshops Um, and I've also had my penultimate radio appearance as the vegetable correspondent for BBC Radio Sussex that's rather sad but the show is closing so my last one will be on the 5th of November going up in fireworks no doubt (laughs) Um, and also I have squeezed a little trip a short trip to France and then to Scotland so it's been diverse uh, but it's all been good but I'm now looking forward to lots of autumn sowing in my greenhouse. Oh, you're always so organised and I'm always trying to emulate you with your planning and I have literally just come back from my allotment where I've been planting out my first batch of hardy annuals. So I've grown cornflowers from seeds from piccolo from my own range. I've grown some corn cockles, which are a particularly pretty one that's called Mylas, Uh which is a sort of white and magenta one, and also some black flowered scabious. So I started those off in my greenhouse at the sort of very end of August, beginning of September, and they're now nice little sized plants. And I thought I'd best get them planted out before it starts raining. And if I'm lucky, I shall have a nice display of flowers in the spring. Oh, Dan, that sounds absolutely lovely. All those flowers, I'm rather jealous. It's always nice to have something to look forward to, isn't it? Well, now, every episode we discuss a hot topic, as most of you now are getting used to that. And this time we're going to debate whether the concept of putting your garden to bed for winter is relevant or indeed necessary. In the past, most gardeners would be thinking about putting their gardens to bed this month and next. But our autumns are increasingly later, particularly here in the UK. And I, for one, seem to be thinking about cutting back, mulching, tidying, etc. in the main garden at almost the end of November, beginning of December, when it starts to turn much colder. My veg patch doesn't ever really stop, so I only have a couple of areas resting before the spring season, but that's down to space, really. Dan, what's your take on this topic? Do you put your garden to bed, or do you let things just rampantly grow on in your mild climate? (laughs) Well, yes. I mean, I think it's something you hear quite a lot, and I think maybe you hear it from people who would really quite like to um, just put their feet up for the winter. But as a concept, I think it's probably a little <laughs> bit outdated for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, you know, the climate is changing. So our gardens don't sort of stop and and freeze for as long as they m- might have done. But also, I think we have 
a much greater appreciation now of leaving shelter and food for wildlife as well, which of course gets disturbed if you winterize your garden. I don't particularly like that term either, but if you put it to bed, then you are tidying away a lot of the, the shelter and cover. But you're right, here by the coasts, the weather is a lot milder. Frosts are very rare. We didn't have a frost here last winter, and of course lots of people suffered badly. And yeah. plants, as you say, just really don't stop growing unless we have a very cold snap. So it's not really a thing here. But one thing I would say, which I always say is the gardener's worst enemy, is wind damage. And that is something where I think it is worth taking some steps um, late in the autumn to protect your garden against wind damage. And wind can cause problems in lots of different ways, but the main one is when plants are left very top-heavy in a windy spot, then they can get blown back and forth, and that doesn't really hurt them too much unless limbs start to break off. But what is a problem is that where they rock in the soil, roots can very easily break. And it's quite common with things like roses and newly planted trees where you can actually see where they reach a point with the soil. You can see that a sort of hole is forming. And of course, then there's every uh, chance that water will go in there and it'll form a bit of a sump and things will break off and plants will rot. So it is a really good idea if you live in a windy spot or there's a storm coming to reduce the height of any plants that are really tall because the likelihood is that the wind will take them over and may cause some damage down below. So remove uh, any excess top growth and put stakes in if you have things like new trees because especially before the leaves fall, as those of us who remember 1987 will know that that is a particularly tricksy time for trees um, if it gets quite stormy before the leaves fall. Because I do grow lots of tender plants, then there there is an element where I do have to, to prepare for winter. And that's made easier for me, though, because most of my plants are grown in pots. So my little sort of winterization project is now making space in my garage and my greenhouse so that I can move them in fairly speedily once I see the forecast getting down to zero. I don't wrap things up like many people do because I can't bear to see their mummified forms in my garden throughout the winter. <laughs> you know, In a small garden you can see everything so the thought of seeing things wrapped in white fleece doesn't really appeal to me. So I let things take their chances quite often. And more often than not, you know, it's a balance between do you wrap them up and risk things getting inside and nibbling away at them and rot and things like that setting in? Or do you just let the air circulate around them and hope for the best, which which is generally my, <laughs> my policy, hope for the best. But from an aesthetic point of view, I particularly don't subscribe to putting your garden to bed because I think, if I'm honest, it's just a little bit lazy. There are so many plants now that we're aware of that look beautiful in the winter, starting with one of my favourites, which is Iris ungicularis, the Algerian iris, which any moment now will start to produce these beautiful Wedgwood blue flowers with yellow um, markings on them, yellow beards on them. And that will flower all the way through the winter. So that's just one example. I've got a fantastic shrub, which is slightly tender in my garden that flowers continually from the end of August to the end of April. It's called Korea. Marion's Marvel, that's Korea, C-O-R-R-E-A, not as in the country. And again, there's a, that's another amazing mm. shrub. Grow it against a wall and you'll have flowers all winter. So, you know, I get the compulsion to clear the decks and, and it's a great time to review your garden and see what needs to be moved around. But in terms of sort of turning my back on it, I'm not up for that. How do you feel? Well, I did lose a Chanticleer pear from Windrock and I do have a wind problem, excuse the expression, because <laughs> unlike you, I live on top of a hill and we are very exposed on the borders of east-west Sussex and in the middle of the countryside, we are quite a few degrees colder 
than you by the seaside, Dan. We are yeah. very open and really exposed at the back of the main garden, so my back garden. And in the winter, the wind really whips up, batters the garden and the back of our house and us if we're brave enough to go outside. So it, it is the price we pay for a gorgeous view across the South Downs, which we have but it actually has its challenges in the winter. So I do tend to put the main garden or the main part of the garden to bed, but mainly to protect the shrubs and the roses and the herbaceous plants. So I haven't started and I said earlier that I do it later, but I do start to cut them back lift and divide if need be it gives me quite a good chance to take stock of what has worked what's got too big autumn is a really good time for that it's a good time to move anything so that's quite helpful uh, or maybe if something's not been working then I can just move it or share it with a friend or something and then when I've done all that then we add mulch and compost and basically hope for the best because we are on heavy clay so things can rot quite a lot but I do have winter interest, so it's not that I put everything to bed and I don't have much to look at because it's really important, as you said, to look at things and to enjoy your garden all seasons. I do have evergreens, camellias, hollies and my box, which have survived the box moth caterpillar, and they come into their own. And also I have quite a few hydrangeas. I have hydrangea Annabelle and I leave the flower heads, the dead flower heads and the dying ones now to stay all winter until next March because I love them in the depths of winter. They just look beautiful with frosts on them and cobwebs and things like that. And the ornamental grasses as well, I also keep. So the main garden gets put to bed, but for those reasons. Yeah, so you're really just revealing the structure of your garden, aren't you? And in enjoying what's there all the time while all the little ephemeral things have gone away. What is it that you look out for? What are your harbingers of spring in your garden? What, what makes you know that spring is coming? Oh, well, interesting to say that. A few weeds. <laughs> they always herald it when I know something's coming. Well, let me think. It's a really good question. What do I have? My favourite, favourite plant called an Edgeworthier. Do you know the Edgeworthia? Ah, it's a Japanese yes, paper yes, plant. Yes. Yeah, I yes. think that's the first one because that's a very early flowering. And I used to have a beautiful Daphne, but sadly Daphne passed away. Yes, they're notoriously short-lived Daphne, so it's not just you. But an Edgeworthia ah. is is a joy to behold, isn't it? Quite special, Julia. Trust you to bring that up. Have you got the yellow one or the red one? I've got the yellow one. I know I don't particularly like yellow, but I did springtime. I embrace it because it's a pale, buttery yellow. Oh, they're very beautiful. Yes. I, I love them. And it's looking very healthy at the moment. So fingers crossed it's going to survive since second year. Yes, that's good. And the red one is really spectacular as well because it has quite white outsides to the tubular flowers and then they're a very sort of bright red on the inside so maybe if you have success with this one you can go and treat yourself to a red one. Oh, excuse the pun but I could branch out. <laughs> you could. So after all that where do we stand? I am very much of a mind that it is a good time for a tidy and a reset I think December is a good month to try and keep clear of too many chores because there's so much else going on and so many pressures. I think if you can get everything done by the end of November and then start again in January, that just lifts a little bit of the burden off. But I really don't subscribe to packing everything away and turning my back on the garden for the whole winter because there's just far too much to enjoy. And of course, if you do think that your garden is boring in the winter, there are so many things that you can plant. Julia's already mentioned the Daphne, Edgeworthia. There are lots of beautiful ferns that sort of rhymes with frost, look absolutely exquisite and are evergreen all through the winter. There are bulbs that you can plant now. The earliest of the daffodils, one is called Rinvelt's Early Sensation. I often used to see that when I lived in London, flowering in people's gardens on my Boxing Day walk. You probably won't get them to flower on Boxing Day if you plant them now, but next year you may well. So just go out and 
start planning to have a bit of colour through the winter so that you can really make the most of it. Where do you stand after all of that, Julia? Well, I'm standing on the fence because I'm in both camps because the main garden, for those reasons I said, needs to be put to bed and yet the vegetable patch doesn't because I love growing things that I can eat all year round or as much as I can, pushing boundaries. And it is more sheltered. It's got two walls. It's got fruit trees to protect it and the bed's not in use they get compost and they get left to rest and the others just keep on going and I keep going with my crop rotation and moving everything around. The one thing I will say is that it is a good chance for beds to rest and rejuvenate and to restore all the nutrients ready for the next growing season. But to be honest, the seasons are merging, aren't they? So actually I'm in both, but I think if I just had a totally exposed garden, I would still be putting it to bed to protect it. I think it, it depends on where you live what conditions are around you and you have to make your your own choices there's certainly no hard and fast rule anymore is there no well said completely agree now every episode julia stirs us into action with a quick easy money-saving project that we can all have a go at and then i showcase a product from my online garden shop julia what wizardry are you going to encourage us to partake in this time i am going to encourage everyone to make plants for free October is the perfect month to take cuttings for tender perennials and semi-ripe cuttings from woody herbs. It's easy to do, it takes five minutes and you can increase your stock more than twofold. It's the best thing to do. Autumn is the perfect time because everything is warm. I would say the ground is moist. We haven't actually had that yet here in the southeast, but we do know rain is coming. And it's a really good medium for cuttings to take, put down roots before everything gets much colder and things go dormant. The best ones, I think, are the semi-ripe cuttings from woody herbs. And by a woody herb, I mean rosemary, mint, thyme, sage, even lavender. And to get the best results, you need to take a healthy green shoot. So if you go and look at your woody herbs, you'll see that lots of them, although the base of the stem and almost halfway to three quarters up is woody, the top bits are really malleable and still green. And you can tell this by just bending them over and they just literally twist and turn like an annual herb, like a sort of a fresh stem. So what you do is you take the top bit, the green bit, so anything woody you don't want to make a cutting from. If it's hard like a stick, it's a no-no. But you take the green and bendy bit and you cut a length off of about 10 centimetres. It could be shorter if you want, depending on the size of your green bit. You remove the lower leaves and place in a pot of potting compost and then pop it somewhere relatively sheltered, water it in and basically ignore it. All you've got to do is make sure that it's had some water. Well, you bury the stem, so I've said remove the lower leaves, but you bury the stem that's completely bare and then you cover that with soil. And very quickly, and I mean quickly, within a couple of weeks, if it still remains mild, you will see roots developing. Well, you may not see, but you'll know that roots are developing quite quickly below in the soil. Now, be patient because sometimes they can look as if they've not taken. They can actually start to look as if they're dying and go brown. Nothing's happening. But if you just wait, add a bit more water and come back and look maybe five days later, it will have suddenly perked up because it's really important what's going on below. They're putting in some roots. So ignore the cutting that goes through the deathly stage and then be patient and it'll put on more green growth and look quite perky. Once established, so you're getting more shoots, which are quite obvious, you'll see the green shoot is growing, then you need to pinch out the central growing tip to encourage little side shoots to bush out because the whole object of taking a cutting is to create more plants, not just one stem wonders. My only advice for this is do not do this if the temperatures really drop or it's freezing or in midwinter, because you can really shock these little cuttings. They've already had a terrifying ordeal by being snipped off from the mother plant and put into some some slightly unfriendly big area of a pot with soil. So be mindful of the weather and what's going on around you and do it on a mild day. It's kind of common sense prevails, I would say. And then the other thing that you could do 
is it's not really making plants free, but it's making little sort of cuttings that'll keep you going till Christmas, is tender herbs like basil and coriander can be potted up now. They can be cut off from your greenhouse or your pots outside because light's beginning to fade and they're beginning to drop. Pop a cutting in a glass of water and leave in a sunny spot with sunlight to grow some roots on in a glass of water. And then when you've got roots, pop them up and leave them on the kitchen windowsill inside and this will extend your season because any basil and tender herbs outside will very quickly die off and um, if you bring them in they'll be slightly weaker plants but you're only really using them to extend the season to get the best out of a few more aromatic leaves for the next month maybe even two months if you're lucky but it's a really good idea to do it and then the other thing that you could do is um mint potted up will give you a small supply of tasty leaves because mint is so fast growing that you can actually pinch out your mint cutting and leave that on the window ledge as well and they might even keep you going through to Christmas and then talking of mint I have pots of mint outside my back door I've just cut all the woody slightly yellowy hard stems and leaves that don't look quite so attractive they can be a bit mottled at the moment I cut the whole lot off back down to soil level in the pot and they've already sprung up looking quite youthful. So I'm also trying to extend the season outside as well as in. So yeah, that's my thrifty tip of low cost, increasing your stock and growing lots more herbs. Brilliant. And such a good idea as well. You know, you mentioned lavender and rosemary. So if you wanted to grow a hedge of either of those things it's a really good way to just multiply your stock and get a free hedge I certainly don't need a free hedge of rosemary because the one on my allotment has like some sort of nuclear reactor beneath it because we we lop massive bits off it and go up again two weeks later and it's absolutely enormous I think it must be one of the very old varieties where people didn't care how big they got but the only thing I would probably add is is how important it is at this time of year with any kind of cuttings or seedlings is to keep the ventilation good because we will start to shut up our greenhouses now and it's very easy if it's warm and damp for cuttings to to rot off because there's too much humidity in the air. So if you are taking cuttings, as Julia suggested, just make sure they're in a well-ventilated spot and that, that counts all the way through the winter, doesn't it, Julia? If you pop them in yes. a cold frame or a greenhouse, let the air circulate around as often as you can so that they don't develop mould. So, Dan, so that's me on my thrifty tips. So what interesting and useful product are you going to tell us about from your gorgeous website today? <laughs> well, I'm going to be really greedy today. Ooh. I am feeling particularly hungry because it is tea time as we record <laughs> this. So... <laughs> I am hungry, but um, I'm going to choose three. And the reason I'm choosing three is they are all bulb planting tools or or tools that will help you plant bulbs. And, and each one has a slightly different function, slightly different use. And we've said multiple times in the last episodes that what a great time it is for planting now while the soil is still nice and warm. It's like the sea down here by the coast the sea is probably at its warmest even though the days aren't because it's had all year to warm up so it's a great time to plant bulbs with the exception of tulips which I'm going to come on and talk about a little bit later when I reveal my pick of the bunch or <laughs> I've probably just done that now I think you've given, given the, the game, game away. away but now is the time to plant things like daffodils crocuses alliums and hyacinths because they will benefit hugely from developing a strong root system before it gets cold and then in spring they'll come whooshing up through the soil and you'll be glad that you took action now. So of course the drawback with this is always that Julia can see the tools and everyone else can't but they're very easy to find and we'll put links in the show notes so you can find them on the website. So tool number one I'm going to talk about my Dutch trowel. Now this I will say has been made a popular style of tool by a certain Monty Don who uses it regularly on Gardener's Worlds but it's a very old tool originally devised for planting bulbs in the bulb fields in Holland which many many people listening will have visited or seen glorious pictures of and it's a very different kind of trowel because it's plunged in vertically 
pulled forward and that creates a sort of e-shaped planting pocket behind it and you pop the bulb in and what's very crafty about this is that the length of the um, blade below the handle is about three times the size of a uh, tulip bulb so um, that means that when you make the hole it's going to be almost at exactly the right depth for a tulip and this tool really is good for planting bulbs en masse. So if you want to put a big clump or a big uh, swathe of bulbs through a border, this will let you do lots of them very quickly because you can literally pop it in, put the bulb in, do the next one and one after another in a sort of rhythmic um, fashion. So that's mm. the tool you need if you're going to plant nice big groups of bulbs in a border or along a drive or even if you're going to do them in your cutting garden because um, we always put lots of tulips in for picking more of which later. Okay Dan I'm just going to ask you a question about that. So your Dutch trowel it's got quite a long handle hasn't it so that's quite good you don't have to really kneel down or bend over quite so much to use that. No, that's true, but it's more about the leverage that it gives you so that you can really, you know, pull it forward like a lever and get okay. that bulb in. So that's the main thing. I've heard all sorts of interesting ways in which that tool has been used, none of which are the original intention, but who cares? You know, use your tools how it works for you, yes. Yeah. Now, this beauty is called a tulip trowel, but it is not oh. necessarily for planting tulips. And this is brand new and has been uh, somewhat of a hit since it came in a few weeks ago now. And I use Julia, for those of you who don't know, I use Julia as my sort of sounding board. So I, I show Julia things and say, what do you think of this? <laughs> I also get her to tell me how much she thinks it should be. <laughs> and very often she's spot on. So uh, my favourite sounding board. But anyway, this tulip trowel is designed for planting bulbs or any other plants in areas of ground that have got lots of roots or stones in. And it's got three very sharp points on the end of a sort of quite conventional curved trowel. And the, those points and the big Vs in between them are very good for cutting through roots if you're planting, for example, beneath trees, azaleas, anything like that, and trying to get bulbs in. This will just cut through really nicely, make a nice planting hole. And so good for those tricky places where you might not otherwise get a normal trowel in. So I love that and it makes quite a nice present. It's not the sort of thing that many gardeners have in their potting shed, so they will always appreciate uh, something new and unusual. Yeah, that is my most pleasing trowel I've ever seen. And it looks <laughs> like a very pretty tulip or a crown, actually. It's the best way to describe it. Yes, yes. I think the Dutch may even call it a crown trowel. And then, of course, finally, we often are wanting to plant bulbs in areas of grass. That might be lawns or meadows. And there it's a lot trickier. There are old-fashioned methods where you lift the, an entire section of turf up and plant up underneath. But for most people, that's probably not how they're going to approach it. This is a good tool, a traditional bulb planter. It's got a cylindrical barrel and a handle hovering over the top. And it removes the core of soil, which you can take out, pop the bulb in and put the core of soil back on top and sort of firm it in. And you'll never know that you've been there. And so this is a great tool for spot planting or just planting the odd one in a border where maybe it's a bit compacted. The usual downfall of these tools, of course, is that they need a lot of pressure exerted. And so the cheaper ones tend to crumple under the mm. weight. But this one is industrial. So this one is not going to do that. It has a lovely sharp blade on the bottom. So I've been very indulgent there with my three bulb planting tools. But I think whatever the job is that you've got to do in your garden, whether it's a tiny crocus bulb or a big crown imperial that you're putting in the garden those tools are going to see you right well i think that's good it's a tool for every person um so do you have a favorite out of those three what would you choose if you if you could choose well the planting trowel i'm just loving every i've just come back from the allotment i've been using it to plant out rows of mizuna and chard and cornflowers oh. and it's just 
easy peasy to use and very very versatile so I think that would be my favourite of the three. Yeah okay so the last one the bulb planter so that's what I've traditionally used to plant mainly my tulips but as you know I garden on really heavy clay and I have ended up with blisters before with a obviously a cheaper version not the damn cooper version but it has been really quite hard work because you're right i mean my muscle action don't need to go to the gym if i'm planting tulips but i'm just wondering whether the one you showed me looks better because you said it was very sharp around the base and maybe that's the key yes i mean the sharpness will certainly help and it can be sharpened further using a diamond file but there is no doubt that boring a core through a lawn or any area of grass repeatedly is going to be tough on your hands so I'd suggest as well as a really good bulb plant and making sure you equip yourself with a well padded pair of gloves as well because it's hard work and I tend to find that if you if you have the luxury of spreading a job like that out over a few sessions then it's much kinder than trying to sort of do the whole lot in one go because you will put quite a lot of strain on your wrists and shoulders and everything else while you're doing it very true yes why sage advice from dan (laughs) so it's almost time for me to reveal my pick of the bunch if you haven't guessed already but first julia what's your (laughs) top of the crops today you must be absolutely spoiled for choice well i am i was struggling to choose something actually because can you believe it i'm still picking lots of tasty edibles from courgettes to cauliflowers, salads, beetroot, quinces, apples, tomatoes, uh, basil, ginger, lemongrass, and last but not least, my chosen top of the crops, chilies. Now, <laughs> I am not a particularly lover of hot and spicy chilies, but I always grow them, and I normally grow ones that are relatively mild, and I just love them for their colour and for preserving. They add so much colour to the greenhouse, particularly at the moment. It's actually just a really jolly place to be. It's really warm. I've got lots of colour. I mean, it was even 23 degrees here yesterday in Sussex. So um, the chilies are absolutely thriving. But if you want to grow chilies, you need to start them really, really early. So it's kind of only a few months before you need to start sowing your seed because I started mine back in January. I used a propagator and I used some new seeds, which I always do, and some saved seeds from my favourite Padron peppers, which are not usually spicy. Uh, It's a bit of roulette where you might get one spicy one, or so (laughs) I thought. But it became quite clear as my plants were growing and maturing that the chilies were not resembling a Padron pepper at all. And they were looking a bit more like a rather red hot chilli in the form of a jalapeno. And it's safe to say, having tried some at the weekend, they are very hot jalapenos. I'm not sure what happened. I either mislabeled or maybe these were new seed and they've been wrongly sorted and stored. Somebody did message me on social media and say, have you not heard about Jalapeno Gate in America? And I thought, what's that? And apparently loads of Padron Peppers have been sold as Padron Peppers and they're all jalapenos. So that person made me feel slightly better about myself rather than blaming myself. But having tested them at the weekend, it's safe to say I will not be eating any more. I'll be preserving them, <laughs> putting them as decorations and giving them to friends locally. <laughs> anyway, the interesting thing about chilies is that if you have got somewhere warm, you can actually overwinter a chilli plant. Now, Dan, you're probably going to say, you're nodding away, you're probably going to say that you can do that really easily in Broadstairs. But it's not so easy here. I do have a heated greenhouse, but it's not hot, hot heated. It's just a temperate climate. And I have tried to overwinter a chilli plant before and it hasn't worked. But not to be put off, I'm going to try again this year and I'm going to bring it into the kitchen because I know it's doable. So if you want to try this at home, just cut off all the branches and let the other leaves fall off. Now the daylight hours are getting a bit shorter. Stop your watering and bring it in and let it sit quietly in a warm spot and just let it go dormant and then hopefully come next spring it'll start to put some new shoots and buds on and you can start your watering again so I think it's definitely worth trying 
The other thing I was going to say is that uh, if you're worried, I'm talking about my chilies are turning from green to red. If yours aren't ripening and you're worried about that, there's a little nifty trick you can do to increase the ripening and that's to hold off on the watering. In fact, you should be holding off on most of your watering in the greenhouse now. I've stopped watering tomatoes. If you stop watering your chilies, it stresses them and it makes them start to turn red because ultimately that is what a chili is going to do before it then sets seed and dies because they are treated or they are really annuals even though you can try and overwinter them. So if you're worried about your chilies, stop the watering and they should all start to ripen. They are really versatile though, love them or not, but they are because the seeds are edible the flesh is edible, you can dry them whole, you can dry them in slices, you can preserve them in chilli oil and you could do what I'm going to be doing with all my jalapenos that are left and which is string them onto thread and hang them up in a nice great string which bizarrely they can look quite festive at Christmas time and hang them up Ooh. a bit like a garland. Now the reason I say start them in January is because they take a very very long time to grow, mature and have enough time to produce fruit that will then ripen in the summer. So that is why you start early. I said I did mine in January. You can do February as well. March you can, but if you sow them later, what's gonna happen is you're gonna have a later harvest. So if you want chilies in the summer, then sow them as early as you can. With regard to the sowing, you are going to need a propagator. I have tried other ways, I've tried to wing it, but propagators really are the best because you have a constant heat and you keep the soil moist at all times. Now, don't be put off because propagators are inexpensive. You can buy little ones and they don't take up much space. They will fit on a window ledge. It's like a mini seed tray with a lid with a heating element. And so just get one if you're worried about space or money. They're not expensive and you can scatter a lot of chili seed in one small propagator. They need light, so don't put them anywhere dark. So a windowsill is great, or a table within access to natural sunlight. And very quickly they will start to germinate and then they will grow very slowly. And when they're big enough, you can then pot them on, but that won't be for a couple of months. Now, I've said that you'll get a harvest in the summer if you start them in January or February. Just that is weather dependent. If we have a terrible summer without heat, they're gonna be later. But the same goes with tomatoes too. Um, for the very best results, they will need heat all the way through. So I would advise keeping them, if you're lucky enough to have a greenhouse, that is the ideal place to grow your chilies. I grow mine individual pots, by the way, in the greenhouse. Or if you have a polytunnel, or again, a sheltered spot against a wall in a porch. But for the best results, they need to be fully protected and that's all season. My jalapenos, to give you an idea, I've got three in a large pot. It's about 50 centimetres diameter and it's only three plants and I must have about 40, 45 chilli fruits. So you can actually produce a lot of fruit in not that much space. And also they're actually quite nice to share with friends. It makes you look rather good if you're going around with a handful of chilies. Obviously my friends will know that I'm actually <laughs> <laughs> relieving myself of spiciness. And then the other thing is that when they're growing, I feed them, so I feed them every other week at the same time that I feed my tomatoes and I only ever use the same liquid feed, which is liquid seaweed. So I have grown another chili called Longhorn, which is really lovely. And last year I grew a brilliant one, which was called Cigaretto di Bergamo. And they look really beautiful strung up on thread. You can keep dry chilies for a number of years if you don't get around to eating them. And um, if you want something spicy, then jalapenos are great. Habarinos are good. So if you want ripe chilies in the summer, start them early, get yourself a propagator and keep inside a greenhouse or polytunnel. Brilliant. Yes. I mean, I did know that you could overwinter chilies, but only because I go on tour with Plant Fairs Roadshow with Claire from Claire's Chilies, and she brings along some plants to these shows that 
are maybe two or three years old and, and quite established and she overwinters them. But I think most people don't consider them to be a perennial plant. It's definitely worth having a go, particularly yes. if you've got a conservatory or anything like that. Just see if you can keep them going. And as you say, they can be very decorative plants. You're really cherishing them for the decorative value as well as I the am. culinary value, which is great. I often do wonder, though, because you see a lot of seed gift sets sold at Christmas with blast your head off hot chilli seeds. I think it's quite, it's amusing, but I'm not sure that, what happens to these chillies? Do they ever get grown? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's probably a little bit gimmicky, aren't they? Or people maybe start them off and they don't start them in the right growing medium without a propagation. They maybe give up. I don't know. It's a bit sad. So choose wisely. As Julia always says, grow what you're going to eat and leave all the sort of faffy gimmicky stuff behind for someone else. Yes, exactly. Uh, unless you make a mistake like I did and thought you were growing padron peppers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, enough of my hot chilies, Dan. What pick of the bunch, I know we sort of think we've guessed, are you going to make us <laughs> drool over? Maybe something for a chillier season? <laughs> well, surprise, surprise, I'm going to talk about tulips. The unrivaled <laughs> eye candy of spring present in our garden from as early as February to as late as May and I've had years where they've even still been a few clinging on in June. I suppose tulips are the dahlias of spring aren't they? They come in the most phenomenal colour range, they perform well, they're incredibly easy to grow especially in the first year. You know there's no particular scale, not denigrating them in any way but there's not a lot of skill required in growing a tulip so very very rewarding plants and a bit like looking at a dahlia catalogue tulip catalogue's the same you know it's like a sweet shop it's like how many can I cram in and how many different ways can I use them so versatile bright easy not a lot not to like of course they are different as I said in that they like to be planted slightly later in the year, November through to January ideally. And the reason for this is that unlike daffodils, tulips come from areas that tend to be a little bit hotter and drier than the UK. So southern Europe, across Turkey and Afghanistan and places like that, where they will experience very cold winters, but be covered and insulated by a layer of snow emerge in spring as the melt water is coming and then bloom and then be baked in the summer and that is not what we generally although sometimes it happens here not generally the experience of a, a British weather cycle so planting them in November just means that they're going into soil which is cold and that helps to stop the spread of diseases because if tulip bulbs get wet and musty they will rot very easily and that then helps diseases like tulip fire to take hold which is a a virus which basically causes colour breaking in the flowers so those amazing Rembrandt tulips that you see in paintings they were all diseased or infected with with tulip fire in some way that's what caused those amazing markings and And of course, there are some tulips where that is a a genetic trait. But in in many cases, if you see red flashes appearing all over your tulip petals, that will be tulip fire. So planting them when it's cold does sort of alleviate that a little bit and will give you healthier plants in the spring. Anyway, uh, tulip bulbs, as I've said when I was talking about bulb planters, just plant them about three times the depth of the bulb. But they are very tolerant of being planted deeper than that. And if you possibly can, there are lots of good reasons to plant tulip bulbs really deep. And that is because it will help them to become more perennial. So if you want your tulip bulbs to come back every year, the deeper you plant them, the more chance there is that they will do that. And of course, you are less likely to disturb them when you're 
tinkering around doing mm. other things in the garden but it also helps protect them from the dreaded squirrels and rats in my case if anyone listened to series one um had a bit of rat <laughs> devastation but you know the deeper they are the more difficult they are to extract from the ground so do give that a go and that is one of the reasons as well why they work so well in the bulb lasagna method which um, for those of you who don't know is basically um, planting bulbs in pots or containers but in layers so putting one layer of bulbs in covering them with compost putting another layer in and the results you get from doing that is just a very full exuberant pot but of course tulips are the bulb that you would plant on the bottom layer because they're very tolerant of being planted deep now is a good time to buy bulbs keeping bulbs it's like any plant any bulb in your garden the sooner you can plant it after you've bought it the better the more things stand around waiting to be planted or hang around in the shed the more things that can go wrong so buy your tulip bulbs as close to when you're going to plant them as you dare obviously you don't want to miss out on the best ones and buy the biggest best bulbs you possibly can because a few pennies make a lot of difference. A bulb grower told me once just how every centimetre in diameter sort of almost doubles the value of the bulb. And that's because the, the bigger bulbs will produce much bigger flowers on stronger stems. I think another bulb grower also told me that you can pretty much equate the size of the flower you're going to get to the size of the bulb. So if you plant very small bulbs, you'll get very small flowers, roughly the same size as the tulip bulb itself. Interesting little fact. You're looking surprised, Julia. Did you not know that one? I love that. I did not know that. I've learned that. And now I'm going to view my tulip bulbs totally differently. That's great because I always <laughs> say to people when they're growing a vegetable, imagine the crop, imagine what you're going to end up with and then you can work out where you're going to plant it and how much yes. space. So I love that tip. Thank you. Yes, that's a good tip. But it, it it is true very much of tulip bulbs that the bigger bulbs will produce bigger, better flowers. Now, of course, you might not always want that. And if you're naturalising bulbs or you want to buy gazillions of them to fill a big space then buying great big bulbs is probably economically not viable if you can't plant bulbs straight away this counts for any bulbs really it's very important if they've arrived with you in boxes you must unpack the boxes if they're in plastic bags of any kind even the ones that are perforated get them out of those plastic bags because they will sweat inside them and just store them somewhere cool, dark and well ventilated until you're ready to plant them. If you want to force your bulbs to flower a little bit earlier, you can pop them in the salad drawer of your fridge. But again, you still need to keep an eye out in there for you know any sort of dampness. So you want them to be dry and cold, but definitely not moist in any way. It is the enemy of tulips, really, any kind of wetness. November through to January, which is quite a long window, I have been known to plant bulbs that I've forgotten about as late as February, and maybe, maybe I should admit, right early in March. And and you will, with tulips, get away with that in a way that you will yeah. not with other bulbs. So if you try planting daffodils that late, you will get measly little things. They may not flower at all. They will probably readjust themselves in the fullness of time, but it's not really the way to do it. So get them in sometime between November and the new year. And you don't really need to water them very much at this point because they are not going to start developing roots really until the ground starts to warm in spring and they'll know when the moment is right. So do avoid if planting uh, tulips in pots soaking them because they don't need it they they would be under a lovely blanket of snow in their native habitat and not getting any water at all mm, you can mix tulip varieties to great effect um and you know you look through the catalogues look through picture books and see amazing combinations if you're going to do that though and plant mixtures of tulips just be really careful to plan 
that they will all flower at a similar time because you could plant five different varieties and they will flower in succession or you could plant five different varieties that will flower at the same time. And also be mindful of the height of the tulip as well because the variation is huge. There are some like Menton which is an absolutely beautiful stately tulip that will approach 60 to 80 centimetres in height and there are other ones like all the Kaufmanniana ones which will be clinging close to the surface of the ground so really think about the height and of course I'm very geeky as everyone has already established and I plan my tulips out on a spreadsheet which has them in order of flowering time and height and colour so it's like all these different axes just to make sure that I get the ultimate display (laughs) and then of course the weather gets in the way and it doesn't turn out like that and tulips all need an open and sunny position they'll take a little bit of shade but remember that shade in the spring is a lot of shade so it's not the same as shade in the summer and they will get floppy very easily and they'll want baking in the summer so if you've got shady spots plant something else plant bluebells plant uh, daffodils that are much more shade tolerant but skip the tulips because they won't really like it You can naturalise tulips very effectively and I can think of a few gardens like Saltwood Castle where I go in the spring where they're dotted through this meadow like like some sort of fairy tale landscape but they're not as permanent I think as daffodils and so if you naturalise tulips in grass you need to choose ones that will perennialise if that is indeed a word which I shall share a few of those with you in a minute But you will also need to top them up every so often because what happens with a tulip bulb is you are buying a big fat ready to flower tulip bulb and of course that's what the nursery people want to give you, that's what you're after. But when that bulb has flowered it is going to produce a myriad, you know, maybe six or seven teeny tiny baby bulbs and they are not going to flower the next year, they're not designed to flower, they were never going to. They will take two or three years to build up into the the size of the bulb that's just flowered and then they will flower. And so that is why people get disappointed with tulips not not coming back. It's because really they're not coming back the next year but they will produce a lot of little flimsy leaves, they won't look like anything and you need to take time and eventually you'll get into a cycle where there are some flowering sized bulbs and some baby bulbs and you'll have something flowering all the time and you won't even notice but it, it is a waiting game and it's why tulips are often thrown away after their season of flowering and, and started again because they won't necessarily all flower the next season but there are a few that I would recommend all of the apple dawns which are tulips that I grew up with ancient varieties They have these big, bright, duck egg sized flowers and they're usually yellow, orange and red. So Apple Dawn's Elite is sort of a very classic tulipy tulip, really beautiful satiny petals, huge flowers. They're a triumph tulip type, very, very reliable, Mm. very perennial. You'll often see them in suburban gardens or even if you move into a new house and the garden's abandoned, you can bet that the only tulip that will come up will be an apple dawn so um, go for those if you want to naturalize them or you want bulbs that come up every year if those colors aren't your game then the impression series is good so there's a pink impression and an apricot impression they're very perennial the viridifloras which are real favorites of mine i used to grow them in my london garden all the time so spring green flaming spring green artist they're all tulips that have flashes of green in their flowers they are absolutely brilliant at coming back and they look a little bit more informal than the apple dawns queen of night which of course is an icon of tulips it is the one that's like a black hen's egg sat on top of a very long stem it's not quite black but it's black enough for most of us and that is a really really good plant but do plant it with something light in the background otherwise it's quite hard to see (laughs) and negrita is a nice one if you want something a little bit paler so it's still a smoky purple pink but they make quite a nice combination and then 
a lot of the species tulips because of course they've not been tampered with in the same way as all the hybrids that we grow so the Grigiais, Tulip Tarda, Turkestanica, Preistans, all of those they will all come back because they are um, the natural tulips and that's just part of their genetics but they are very small and they're best planted in raised beds or rockeries. So that's tulips. Now is the time. Get out to the garden centre, order them online, keep hold of them for just a couple more weeks now. Probably by the time this podcast goes out, it'll almost be uh, time to get planting and then go to town with them. Really enjoy them. They're flamboyant flowers, aren't they? Yeah, they sound lovely. And I I knew we'd be drooling over something and I'm really drooling over your descriptions of those tulips. (laughs) But it it does beg the question that I'm going to be a bit controversial here, that how environmentally friendly do you think tulips really are? Because I do get frustrated with tulips grown in the ground. Maybe I'm not planting them deep enough. I'm not planting any this year in the ground because I got tulip fire last year or earlier this year. You know, it's not good, is it? Buying, having them shipped over, planting throwing away that's a terrible thing isn't it as gardeners yes. we're all trying to be more sustainable so do we just take off the little bulbs and the babies and plant them up some people don't have space or should we maybe really not planting too many tulips or just planting them in pots no we should definitely plant tulips but you're entirely right about the sustainability thing and it's great that these questions are being aired now because it's the same with annuals that are produced in plastic trays in greenhouses with heating you know that are left outside supermarkets well die mainly but um you know it's the same thing you know tulips are a high energy commercial crop if you like that are produced en masse and the vast majority will will not come back and reflower or people will put them on their compost heap. And so most of these things are common sense. That can't be a great way to go on. But there are lots of people now, lots of growers that are really quite focused on this idea of perennial tulips. So I suspect that in the fullness of time, those that are not that don't come back year after year will be more frowned upon people will start to err and people will start to breed tulips that have a more perennial habit and things will change it's not a reason not to grow tulips and it would and there of course there are tulips um that are grown in this country they're not all from uh, the netherlands but um yes i think it's a good question to ask with anything we do in the garden and tulips are probably um up there with some of the the less sustainable things. They are, however, appealing yes. to um, to bees early in the year. We often find bees foraging in tulips, so they do have wildlife value, despite the fact that they are not native plants. Yeah, this is true. Okay, I'm mindful of being sustainable, and mine are just going to be in pots anyway, because they've got to be. But I, I think that I'd prefer not to have to be throwing them away and buying them every year. Right, thank you, Dan. That was lovely. So to round off this episode, we compile a list of jobs to do in the next two weeks. And this time it's Dan's turn to enlighten us on what to do. Yes, so there's lots to do. For many gardeners, this is considered the start, not the end of the gardening year. So it's time to order and plant your onion sets. Get hold of tulip bulbs and any other bulbs you want to plant now because they should be planted as soon as possible. Remove your spent tomato plants and if you think they may have blight, make sure you destroy them by burning them and don't put them on your compost heap, otherwise they're fine to compost. Sow more salads, fennel and beetroot for late crops in a greenhouse or undercover. Take tender stem cuttings, as Julia suggested earlier. Clean your greenhouse benches and areas as crops die back because you'll have lots of detritus and it's really good when you start putting plants away for the winter to make sure everything is clean. Make space in your sheds and garages for plants that will need winter protection. Don't wait, like I often do, until the evening before the first frost. Spray for the last time for box moth caterpillars and then hopefully you won't see them until next May and you can start the cycle again. But enjoy your precious box through the winter months unblemished. 
start picking dahlias now like fury because they will start to decline as the day length fails and you want to enjoy them in your home. Take cuttings of Plectranthus and Coleus while the weather is still mild. Follow Julia's instructions for the tender herbs earlier. They're exactly the same. Pick and store your apples when it's dry and while the apples are blemish-free because many varieties will keep for weeks and months and actually get better. There is a variety called Christmas Pippin, which um, is so called because it was stored until Christmas when it's at its best. That's nice. And keep an eye out in the hedgerows for sloes that can be steeped in gin to make a delicious winter warmer. Mm, that's a great list. Quite a lot to do there, Dan, but that'll keep us busy, won't it? <laughs> it will. <laughs> oh, right. So before we go, we like to share what we will be up to between now and the next episode. Dan, what are you up to and where can we find you? Well, I had a week off, didn't I? Which means it's all go again now. I've got some new plans to reveal for the next two weekends. So keep checking on my Instagram for news of those. And then looking a little further ahead, on November the 5th, I'm returning to Chiswick Flower Market, which I'm really looking forward to. How about you, Julia? Well done. I'm intrigued about what you're up to at the end of, of October. But what actually, what concerns you more? Oh, pumpkins. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I am to be found mostly in my greenhouse, which I'm really looking forward to, with no workshops for a while. It's going to be rather nice to take my foot off the pedal. But looking ahead, Alatex have an open morning on the 18th of November, 9 till 1, at their headquarters, which is Torbury Farm near Petersfield. And if you're toying with the idea of having a greenhouse on site, this is the perfect place to come and discuss further with the team who will be there. Alatex are also exhibiting for the first time at the Country Living Christmas Fair on the 8th to the 11th of November which is at the Islington Design Centre. And then they're going up with the same fair to Harrogate, which is the 30th of November to the 3rd of December. I am actually joining Alatex in the Islington Design Centre on the 11th of November, showing some grow your own tips and trickery. So do come along and say hello if you're in the area or if you're planning on coming to the show. Oh, that sounds brilliant. I absolutely love a Christmas fair and I'll be going to a few of them. So um, yes, what can be better? A greenhouse in nice cold weather, lovely. And of course, we're going to be out yeah. at Alatex too in November recording a special episode. So I'm very excited about that. That's all for this episode of Two Good Gardeners. It just remains for me to say goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. You've been listening to the Two Good Gardeners podcast with Dan Cooper and Julia Parker. Sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then why not click follow on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss out. Leaving a rating or writing a review will help us reach other gardening enthusiasts like you. We'll return here with a freshly prepared smorgasbord of delights in a fortnight. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at Garden at parkers underscore patch and at two good gardeners or visit our website you'll find the addresses in the show notes if you've got questions for either of us you can email them to hello at dancoopergarden.com until the next time happy gardening